And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel, and uh, this this. A wonderful day, this blessed Sabbath day, we are going to be talking about uh, what's going on in the property rights movement. I've got a young friend who is just uh, really an outstanding young man that is involved in Montana in trying to expose all the programs behind UN Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, the uh, 30 by 30 program, all the various uh, federal rulemaking that are tied in with promoting the sustainable development program. And uh, Nathan Dejmaker is a uh, rancher from central Montana. He raises uh, registered feeder calves and he is involved in the property rights movement all over the state of Montana and really all over the country. And he is, I think, one of the brightest little minds I've ever run across. And the cool part about that is is Nathan is completely homeschooled and self-taught in the legal aspects. And he is an absolutely amazing young man. Uh, As I said a little bit earlier, I, I consider him Uh, My legacy in the state of Montana, he's going to be the young man who is going to be helping people to wake up to the reality of what's going on in the world, and he is doing an incredible job. He is probably more a diplomat than I could ever be, and in that regard, I think he's getting a lot done that some of us uh, who get a little more excited may not be able to get done. Nathan, uh, it's always a pleasure, my young friend, to uh, welcome you to Connecting the Dots. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Dan, much appreciated. <clears throat> I just always have to ask you to make sure everybody can you can hear me good, first of all. Yeah, everything's great. You're coming in great. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Dan, for a pretty lofty <laughs> introduction of <clears throat> myself. I try to do what I can do, I suppose, in, in the sphere and, and, and where God's placed me and uh, always often 
feels like <clears throat> sometimes it's an uphill uphill battle and climb when you uh, you start to realize what's at work in our world, um, the huge shifts we see taking place in government policy, uh, and across the board, it doesn't matter where you look, whether it's the health uh, front, economics, our natural resource industries, geopolitics, and 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 everything else. And I've, I've studied pretty broad aspects of, of all of those areas to some extent, but my main focus, as Dan kind of alluded to, has been in our natural resource industries and really trying to understand uh, our common law heritage and property rights and just the rights that are granted by God to the individual person as clearly laid out in the Declaration of Independence and the original compacts of our country. So, so that's, uh, that's the important thing I think we must do is reconnect with that heritage. That's been the passion conviction and study of my desk for longer than 10 years, but especially the last eight to 10 years, uh, to get more acquainted with where we come from as a people, our heritage and the truth, property rights, and the inviolable dignity of the individual person so i guess this program looking forward to it dan and the conversation a lot of a lot of things happening out there that we can discuss and also maybe maybe that what i just said it's always good to i guess lay a foundation of our heritage and the principles and then bring them into where we are and what we're facing now and and try to our best ability to apply them so um well, that's uh, Nathan, a good start. It's a good start. And Nathan, that's something that uh, a great place to start is the fact that we are living in a country, our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence talks about our unalienable rights, our rights under God. And that is the difference between the United States and so many other countries is that we recognize that our rights come from God and not from government. And government is there to serve us and to serve mankind and not the other way around. And we're the only country that has ever fully recognized that. And yet now they're trying to strip those rights away and they're trying to take away unalienable rights and replace those with uh, government granting of rights. And world government is a big part of that push. So I guess uh, with that said, I'll let you take it where you want to take it. Yeah, well, you, you made a really good point there. And, and I actually have something pulled up here. I'll just read from really quick because it speaks pretty clearly to what you just said. Uh, and this is from Robert Duncan Culver in his work Toward a Biblical View of Civil Government, uh, published 1974. Um, he says, it is no accident that the more thoroughly secular socialist political theory controlling a nation becomes, the more sub or post-Christian it becomes. Even in the United States of America, the actual working philosophy is to regard the voice of the majority as ultimate. Constitutions, the eternal laws of God, and the innate rights of man 
or the or and innate rights mean nothing ultimately the public opinion poll becomes the ultimate instrument of determining policy and a, and an elite party may become the trustee of the nation as in most socialistic states but in any case man is ultimate so in that quote and there's some stuff before that in, in him saying that but he makes a valid point of the more we break from in his words our judeo-christian heritage and adopt a secular socialist political ideology and impose it in government processes that's exactly what happens we end up eroding and doing away with really the fundamental purpose of establishing government to begin with which is to protect the individual person the rights mm-hmm. of the individual and that was the intent of our founding fathers who disenfranchised themselves in many respects by establishing a, a republic of law and not a law of men mm-hmm. um so or a republic of men so the the rights of the individual are absolutely fundamental to any just society and good law and policy is designed to preserve the sovereign domain that is uh, reserved uh, to the individual person and his life, his liberty and his property. And this, this quote I quoted from, I mean, that's 1974 and we've, I mean, just look at where and how far we've gone and breaking with that heritage since then. And now we're at the place currently in the situation we're facing in the administrative state today Uh, We're seeing just unprecedented growth in the administrative state and bureaucracy to implement policies and regulatory frameworks that are not going through the bicameral process, which means the Constitute or the Congress, the Senate, and the president's desk. It's all uh, being done through executive edict and executive powers. And they're doing so much of it at once that the individual person and the public who need to be scrutinizing these processes can hardly even track and keep up with the sheer volume of what is happening in government policy today. So pretty problematic. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And uh, what you're talking about and the rulemaking and so forth that they're trying to replace law with. Our system of government was always intended, you you mentioned we are a republic, and for over a hundred years, our so-called elected leaders have been telling us that we're a democracy, and that's just absolutely not true. We were made a republic in living under rule of law because laws and rule of law protects all people, minorities, majorities, it protects all people equally. And that's the problem with democracy. We try to replace rule of law with rules. And that is a real serious mistake. And democracy is mob rule in essence. And uh, what we need to go back to is our Republican form of government, which puts law and law in order uh, before any so-called democratic process. 
Exactly. Um, you know, someone has said the difference between a republic and a democracy is two wolves and a sheep making decision. A democracy is two wolves and a sheep making a decision. A republic, the sheep has a gun. So a republic really is a counterbalance that provides a sovereign power to the individual person to bring accountability to those who the society as a whole has placed into a position to represent their interests. And the thing, I, I, you make a really good point because we part of the Biden administration is pushing a Justice 40 initiative and all this equitable and, and minorities, helping minorities and all this different thing. But as you said, a democratic framework of policy always tends to isolate a minority group and penalize that group from uh, being able to do certain things while it gives the privilege to another group. And that's not the rule of law. That's obviously a a form of, I don't know how to put it, I guess, but it's it's the taking from from one man and giving to another. And, and the rule of law is not about that at all. Our system is made up of a series of minority relationships. Uh, the individual is the only minority to be recognized by common law. The only minority mm -hmm. under common law that is recognized and protected is the individual person. Law in its just sense does not segregate men into different classes, whether that be by your, your sex, your color, your your background and wh or where you work, what industries you work in, uh, et cetera. The laws designed to, no matter what and who you are, as long as you adhere to the principles of law and the equal rights of your neighbor, your dignity as a person is inviolable. And under common law, that's the case. And we see that language even in our federal and state constitutions. Uh, so the problem is when when the law singles out groups of individuals for preference, the sovereignty of the individual is eroded, and therefore the protections that are were afforded to individuals under the law are stripped in preference to the group. Mm -hmm. And this is not done being done to any cognizable general rule, but is being done arbitrarily. So this, this picking of classes of people that the government's going to choose to favor and choosing and picking another class that it's going to not favor is, is an arbitrary action. It is totally inconsistent with the rule of law because the rule of law entails that individual people can anticipate how government will utilize its coercive powers beforehand. Mm -hmm. That's, in other words, government agencies and government Departments are bound by existing laws that the people should be able to have a knowledge of and understand how government will function in using its coercive powers. But like I said, when government picks and chooses different groups of people, it creates a form of democratic tyranny. And this, this runs counter to fundamental principles of self-government and destroys the necessary development of an individual for excellence and leadership. Because without principles, man is given over to the interests of the changing fads and shifting That's winds right. of the world. 
and security for the individual and his person and his property is lost when principles are allowed to go to the wind. If we are not to witness true leadership, or, or let me put it this way, if we are to witness true leadership in the day we're living in, it will be on the basis of what they stand on. And in our history of sound leadership that, that laid up for us, they stood on the principles of God for the interests mm -hmm. of their fellow man. Um, so a man, to summarize, a man given over to the interests of men is no leader. And when the blind lead the blind, they'll fall right into the pit. And that's, that's where right. we are. So we need leaders and we need to expose bad leadership. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly right. And when when one group has any preference over another, that is what uh, comes from democracy. That does not come from government uh, of and by and for the people. And of course, we've seen so much of our history, they're trying to rewrite everything in our history. Uh, you know, the 1619 Project is a perfect example of that. Uh, you know, saying that the United States was founded on slavery. No, it wasn't, <laughs> but that did exist. And it existed uh, through um, people of all colors being brought into this country under indentureship as a, a, as a uh, um, I guess, a consequence of being brought here. They agreed to work for somebody else for so long to pay for the ticket over here. And that happened with all races. That happened in my own family. That happened probably in your family. Uh, a lot of people came over as indentured servants and agreed to work from anywhere from three to 10 years to as indentured servants uh, with no pay, but basically board and room. And that was to pay for their trip over here. Now, to change that, to try to make that not the case, is really uh, in the way that they're trying to destroy real history. Yeah, it's a really, it's a real revisionist uh, viewpoint. Thomas Sowell, um, there's a quote of his, and he's a, a black man mm -hmm. and very brilliant man. And he made the point, and I may be paraphrasing his quote a little bit, but that there was more white Caucasian people in slavery at the time of colonial America than there were African-American. When you look at the global scene. Um, and our founders um, were ahead of their time in a large extent, in many respects. It was, it was our system, our Republican forms of government and the the high ideals of the integrity of the individual person as shown in the scriptures, um, which started with the reformation back in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, there was a progression of historical reality that unfolded that built the foundations for the possibility of the declaration of independence. And prior to that, the, the English bill of rights, um, and way before that, obviously, the Magna Carta, but then the 1600s, you had the English Bill of Rights, the English Constitution, and then William Wilberforce and the British Parliament 
was a rail within parliament leading ultimately to the the abolition of the slave trade in mm -hmm. great britain and ironically enough in britain uh slavery was never permitted in the homeland under english common law slavery has never been permitted the british obviously took part in the international slave trade and that was taking place within their colonial outposts that were being governed under certain maritime law and, and different things and that's part of the issues our founding fathers ended up having with the king in england is they were being treated like basically slaves being robbed of their common law english chartered rights um and they appealed to the king on the basis of the english constitution and on the english bill of rights just like their forefathers did martin luther and and others before them back in the reformation era they appealed to the church system on the basis of the word of god mm -hmm. and appealed to those fundamental basises for the rights and the dignity of the individual person so these people that want to paint the founding of our hit nation as this systematically racist thing are so far off in relationship to the progression of human history and how it was actually those founding principles of the high ideals that are laid out by God's creative design in the word of God and the publishing of that in language that individual common people and not some papal hierarchy could read for themselves and understand led to revolutionary processes within government, which for most of human history functioned under centralized power, mm -hmm. either under a king, a sultan, a Caesar, some man who claimed sovereign jurisdiction over the rights of individual people. That's most of human, human history, by the way, I people. Do. So mm -hmm. this idea that the rare break from that reality, which was our constitutional republic the english bill of rights and the progression that led up to that that placed like link like uh uh not lincoln uh benjamin franklin said what what kind of government did you give us a republic if you can keep it um so our system and our foundation of government is far from systematically racist as you said dan there was race not racism, I should say, but there was slavery and maybe mm -hmm. racism that was taking place in certain contexts in colonial America. But the system of law and government that has high regard for the individual person was the framework that led to the capacity to abolish such a trade and practice. And that's what people are leaving out of the discussion of reparations mm -hmm. and all this idea of systematic slavery being the foundation of the American Republic. Mm -hmm. Well, as a matter of fact, our Civil War uh, resulted in the death of over half a million Americans, and it was fought over that very issue. And all I can say is that, uh, uh, you know, when they, when they say that we're, we're, our system is inherently racist, um, I'm sorry, but that is not, certainly not true for the majority of Americans. And I think at the stage we're at right now, we're picking and choosing who the winners and losers are going to be, and that is so totally anti-American. I don't care if, if they pick all the black people and hate all the white people, or pick all the white people and hate all the black people, 
all of that is inherently wrong. It's anti-American. It's unconstitutional. And we should put this stuff to an end right now before it ruins our country. Yeah, well, we need to, as I said, we need to reconnect to our heritage. And heritage implies history. Um, and, you know, as I was saying a little bit with the progression through several hundred years of common law developing, when Martin Luther, ironically enough, historically, Martin Luther came onto the scene at the same time as Gutenberg and the coming forward of the, the printing press. When Luther died, around 80% of the writings in the Western world were his writings. It's astonishing to think about God's providence and work through individuals in history and the pivotal impact it has had on our history. And, and Luther's work and Zwingli and Wycliffe, these men's work was fundamentally based in the conviction to get the word of God into the ordinary person's hands. Mm -hmm. And those, many of those men were burned at the stake and killed by the papal church state system for simply desiring to give individual people access to the word and the ability to read it for themselves and hold accountable their neighbor and to live according to what they understood to be God's will. Um, that's, that was their motivation. But with, with Luther, like I said, 80% of talk about having an impact. I mean, he mm -hmm. look at the impact of that. There was no Facebook or social media platforms in those days. Like I said, the printing press had ju just come on the, the stage and I, and Luther happened to, I believe lived in the same town as Gutenberg, which is part of what gave him such direct access to being able to publish so many, much of his writings and his work. And, and the scriptures as well, that became the mechanism to print the word of God and to broadly disseminate it to the people so that they could have a basis to challenge and hold accountable higher government. And we see that culminating coming up into the English Civil War in the 1600s with Oliver Cromwell. That is the, the English Civil War is the greatest example of even the king being under the law by the parliament holding him on trial for treason and cutting his head off. That happened historically. Uh, and, and Cromwell, by the way, who led the parliamentary army, was surrounded by some very profound individuals. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the second most sold and read book in the world next to the Bible, served in his ranks as an Ironside. Um, John Owen, the greatest theologian England ever produced, wrote The Mortification of Sin and Believers, was his chaplain. John Milton, the second greatest poet and writer next to Shakespeare that England ever produced, was his secretary. Mm -hmm. And Samuel Rutherford, the Scotchman, theologian who wrote Lex Rex, which means the law is king in defense of the parliamentary cause in England, was around the same time period. So it's just little snippets like that. You know, for some of your audience, a lot of your audience maybe maybe haven't even heard some of those names. But for some of you that maybe knew of John Owen or Cromwell or Bunyan and some of these names, 
It's another thing to look at the context of where they were living and what was happening in England at the time. And that, that time frame was really fundamental to the foundation for our Republic because we create our system has a Congress and a Senate. And where do you think that separation of the legislative power came out of the English civil war? Mm-hmm. Cromwell, that's where your house of Lo- the, the house of commons and then the house of Lo- Lords uh, came into being and which was, you know, carried over into our system to some extent with that separation with the leg- within the legislative branch. But, but the point being is to summarize with that, all those separation of powers frameworks in government was based and designed from the motivation to protect individual people. Mm-hmm. the rights of the individual person. So coming full circle back to the individual, our system was founded on those legal principles to protect you. And the deg- and to the degree it is doing the opposite of protecting and, and preserving your interests as a lawful citizen, it is breaking covenant with the people and is violating its oath and its, and its position as government to be a servant rather than a master of the people. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And, um, you know, you mentioned uh, Gutenberg and the Gutenberg press, but prior to that and prior to Martin Luther, the Catholic Church and individual uh, members of the uh, hierarchy within the Catholic Church were the ones that uh, produced all the writing, all the biblical uh, translations came through them. And they they called the Gutenberg Press a creation of the devil because it, for the first time, could produce a writing that could not be directly attributed to uh, someone in the Catholic Church as a scribe. That's the difference. And that's where our whole system of, and and it is a Protestant system of government under common law came from, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, not John Adams, but his, his cousin, Samuel Adams, after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, is quoted of saying that the the uh, the reign of political Protestantism is about to begin. Uh, and the Protestant Reformation was based on, like we've been saying, the restoring of the ability for individual people to come directly to God through the merits of Jesus Christ and not through some papal council or priest or some other intermediary. The Bible is crystal clear on this. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Um, so the, we got to remember that the cause of liberty and in, in the, these times was almost 100% based on religious freedom traditionally was not fought for the idea that we can just worship whatever we want. As we see the concept of freedom of religion today, historically in the Christian West, the freedom of religion was the freedom for individuals to read the word of God for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the Hussite, Hussite uh, movement under John Huss and Ziska, that was the case. And it was actually the Bohemians, the Czech Republic, who passed the Articles of Prague, 
which predated much of the English and other documents on, relating to the freedom of religion. And the f- second article of the Articles of Prague, I believe, was the free preaching of the scriptures and the, 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 the rights of conscience of the individual. So, so like you said, what the Catholic papal church state system was seeing in Luther, and Luther, by the way, was a Catholic priest, Mm-hmm. And himself started reading the word for himself and realizing, how, well, we have some big issues with our system and what the word of God clearly uh, says. And Luther, just like our founding fathers who didn't try to go against England, but simply tried to appeal to England based on fundamental principles of English common law to reform it back to the, what it should be. Luther did the same thing. He wasn't trying right. to come against Catholicism directly initially, he was simply trying to reform the church back to its organic roots of the fundamental things that are taught in the word of God. And you can't do that by robbing the people, individual people from having direct access to the word of God. Um, So it's important to understand that that's the freedom of religion and the freedom of conscience that was being waged for several hundred years leading up to the declaration of independence and that led ultimately with the freedom of religion comes all other freedoms the freedom of the market right. the freedom of speech the freedom of assembly uh all those things some of which we see enshrined in the bill of rights uh are derivative from that long heritage and history of men fighting for the right to read the word of God for himself and to live accordingly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the right of the individual, individual, that is the key to that whole process. And I'm, I'm glad this has been great the way you framed this, Nathan, because let's bring property rights into this discussion now because that is a right that is almost uniquely American, uh, understanding that humans have the right of ownership to all sorts of different things. And everybody thinks in terms of property, it's you know land or a house or whatever. But property is basically everything in our our whole sphere. It's the right to think. It's the right to choose. It's the right of your body. It's the right to choose not to get a vaccine if you don't want to be vaccinated. It's the right to choose things that happen with your personal self. And that is a property right that a lot of people just don't get. They don't understand what property really is. You do. I'd like you to explain to our listeners just exactly how inclusive the rights of ownership and the rights of property really are. Yeah. So since we've been kind of touching on a little bit of, you know, theological foundations in these things, the establishment of private property is embodied in one of the Ten Commandments, more than one actually, but one in particular, thou shalt not steal. Mm -hmm. That law that commands an individual not to steal 
implies the fact and the right of his fellow human beings having something that is within their sovereign jurisdiction that you have no power over and actually in trying to assert power over it, you violate the law. Another one is thou shalt not covet because covetousness ultimately leads to theft. You don't steal your man, your, your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's intellectual property or your neighbor's possessions or land or whatever it may be without first coveting it and desiring it for your own. Both those commandments are the establishment positively of private property. You can't steal something that doesn't belong to somebody. So that's the fundamental of it. And as, as you said, Dan is uh, property comes down to our thoughts, our intellectual property. And so, so one thing to think about here, I guess, is how does one acquire property? Frederick Bastiat, the French economist and statesman said, there's only two ways to acquire property. You either earn it through the sweat of your brow, through labor, or you take it from somebody who's developed it from the sweat of your brow and labor. There's only two ways to acquire property. So like John Locke in his work, the second treatise of government, for instance, in describing man in nature as being a totally free individual and land, let's say in common, let's say there's a parcel of land out there that nobody's claimed, nobody's currently inhabiting that has some apple trees on it. John Locke explains in that work that when a man goes in and picks the apple carves it up and makes a pie out of it. That's the appropriation of the otherwise things of nature that are just there in common to himself. He took something that another man could have equally gone and grabbed and taken and appropriated to himself and took the time and labor to do that. Now somebody else could come and rob and steal the pie and the, and the work and the labor it took to convert a raw material within nature and appropriate to appropriate it to oneself because there's value now that's added to that property because for somebody to, if we have a medium of exchange where somebody can purchase that from that individual, what you're ultimately purchasing is the saving of time from yourself and your label labor to have to go pick the apple, carve up the apple and make the pie. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's pretty basic way to put it. And you can apply that across the, the realm to hard hard rock mining to, everything else we do to convert resources. And, and even, even for people that aren't owning, let's say the hard assets, like an apple tree and land, because land under private cultivation and private property creates more than any one person or family can utilize it. It, be, it then becomes a mechanism of trade in the marketplace. And if you have a medium of exchange, somebody who may not even own any land ends up being a owner of indirectly of that property, or let's say the fruit of that property by purchasing, hopefully that product from the individual who took the time and labor to appropriate it to himself and, and put the value to that product that then can be purchased at agreed upon price by contract or otherwise in the market. And that's how our, our system literally of law and everything else in our system really derived from private property 
and the market order of being able to exchange the goods and services that individuals appropriate to themselves that create value to other people. And because I may be the one making apple pies and Dan's over there uh, appropriating a totally different material resource and creating something totally different, there's the medium of exchange for trade for the mutual benefit of one another. Now we have the development from the being in nature and being able to go pick the apple and create the product to now entering into a commonwealth with my neighbor because our collective labor and property makes it easier for both or all of us that agree to enter into that commonwealth. And that's what our, the, the, the philosophers called society. That's what we did as the American people when we drafted the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, is established a commonwealth where we all came together and agreed to forfeit some of our natural rights in order to reap the benefits of the mutual agreement that we will reap the benefits of each of our individual sovereign rights and our property and not violate those equal rights of one another. And that's how government comes into being to begin with. Right. Um, to is protect we those relationships. To protect those relationships and rights. Mm -hmm. But it starts in nature. The, the, uh, and nature is God and, 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 and the laws of nature. And, but I just wanted to go through that analogy a little bit. If you want to read something that goes through that in a much better way, is John Locke's Second Treatise of Government is absolutely excellent in laying out uh, the appropriation of property and the role of government in the protection of those property rights interests and how important private property is to a free market economy mm -hmm. and, the, and the division of labor and therefore the prosperity of all people. And in America, you see that so evident is even the poor in America that own very little physical property are way better off than even some of the best and well-to-do people in systems of government that have no regard for private property. Even the poor among the America, Americans traditionally are direct beneficiaries of the freedoms, the charity, and the fruit that comes out of the protection of people to be able to harvest resources, appropriate property to themselves, and share and trade the benefits of that mutually with their neighbors without the unnecessary intrusion by government to limit and regulate and inhibit your ability to meet the needs of your neighbor and of your own family. Mm -hmm. It's fundamental. Mm -hmm. Very fundamental. And Nathan, what we're seeing now is such a perversion because government now is eliminating rule of law and they're picking and choosing the losers and the winners. And uh, in doing that, the whole system gets so skewed that uh, property rights become blurred and that's where we're at today because they are literally taking away our ability to produce when they take away our property. And when they take away property 
And uh, let's say they say that all property is part of a collective. It takes away the incentive that is necessary when you've got a free market system where you can have winners and losers because those who work hard and those who produce are more likely to thrive in that kind of an environment. And those who don't have to look at the uh, loss of a lot of that is a result of their lack of the same kind of drive, the same kind of initiative. That is the whole process that we're living under and it creates excellence where excellence would not exist otherwise. Exactly. Um, and and what, ha well, what, what happens and what is happening and has always happened all through history. This is a, in some regards, a perpetual battle. Our founding fathers said the condition upon which God has given liberty to man is eternal vigilance which condition if he breaks servitude is the immediate consequence of his crime. And the reason this is an eternal battle is because the nature in all of us is to take rather than to work, mm -hmm. especially when there's no consequences from taking from your neighbor. And that's what's happening today is the law is now being turned on its head and is actually rewarding those who are violating their neighbor's rights and property and penalizing the lawful citizen who's functioning in a lawful manner with his life and his, and his, and his liberty and his property. Um, so it's like I, Isaiah said, you know, woe to those who call sweet, bitter and bitter sweet. Um, and that's where we are today in, in our system and the picking of winners and losers and really just the intrusion of government into the marketplace and into the private domain. Um, our founders established a limited system of government on purpose, enumerating in black and white the powers delegated to those organs of government uh, so that the accountability necessary was there to preserve for posterity and future generations those freedoms um, to, the, to the future generations of, of, of our country. And private property as you said, Dan, and as we're discussing, life, liberty, and property. Uh, they're three legs of the same stool. Um, when you take somebody's property, it's actually a form of taking his life because property is actually the means by which we provide the sustenance for our individual life and our family, our neighbor, our community, et cetera. So when government enters more and more into the domain of dictating and telling and regulating and planning how production shall take place, human suffering and the breakdown of all the freedoms that come with the inherent right to property and the fruits thereof is the result. Um, systems break down under government intrusion into the private spectrum of the market that seeks to plan. And we know this from even recent history with the communist planners in Europe uh, over and over again, giving us plenty of examples. And for some reason in America, we tend to be following down the same exact pathway, which has proved time and again mm -hmm. to lead to the loss of liberty to the individual, the unlimited growth of government bureaucracy and power, 
and culminates ultimately in human suffering and the violations of the fundamental dignity and character of individual people in the process. Unless you, of course, are in the position of power and the people who have the power are your buddies. Um, and that's why our founders didn't set up a republic of man because that's the tendency of all of us is, is to, you know, and then we get into a position of compromising our convictions to avoid the consequence of suffering in the world by standing on the truth. And that's uh, the American people really have to ask themselves and people, especially in positions of power from the local to the senior positions, um, what and who they serve. And many of those people have taken an oath of office to the constitution. And when they are faced with a choice to compromise their oath of office to the constitution to protect the fundamental principles therein, um, I would hope that would be an easy choice for, for them. But sadly we're coming into a time where choosing to uphold the rule of law and the constitutional principles of freedom is becoming more and more costly. Mm -hmm. Well, and a lot of them, and I'm, I'm, it's sad to say this, but as, as you know, I was a county commissioner and I can tell you that the other county, the other two county commissioners in the county that I served in swore that same oath, but I know that neither one of them had a full understanding of what that oath really meant because they did not really understand what our Constitution said. And they may have read it at some point in time, but they never truly understood it. And that is kind of a consequence of our whole political system. We really need to get our elected leaders on board with their constitutional duty, but that is antithetical to getting reelected. And therein lies the the problem because most politicians want to get reelected rather than do their job and serve the oath of office. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, Dan. And sometimes that's the cost that, that you pay to, to stand on the truth. But to the on the alternative, in some cases, I would submit that if some leaders would simply just keep their oath of office and represent solid leadership and really serve the interests of the people, not their little pet interests, but the actual interest enumerated in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, the general rule of law, um, I think they'll get voted back in as long as there's not some corrupt election that's rigging the system. Mm -hmm. Strong leaders that truly represent the people, um, because that's another problem. The reason some leaders do get lose their position when they do lead in such a way is because we've allowed special interest minority groups to have a tremendous amount of influence in our in our representative processes. So, and that's why local government is so important to be engaged at the local level, um, because it's at the it's at the local level, especially at the county commission front, where you have an aggregate of sovereign power within that jurisdiction, where people have more direct accountability and can bypass um, all the lobbying influence that's involved from special interest groups. Um, and mobilize 
uh, people within their community to bring forward that accountability. Um, some county commissioners or just, let's say, civic leaders in general, I think are able to lead and will lead in some cases, but they need the support system of the people they're representing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's two, it's a two edged sword. Uh, if we have civic leaders willing to count the cost and stand on the truth, we need citizens. And by the way, the word citizen comes from the Latin, which means co-ruler, mm-hmm. co-sovereign. You don't have that in socialist communist systems. You're not a citizen. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're a subject. So you're a subject. Mm-hmm. So our citizenship is actually part of that eternal vigilance we need to apply to back up and support our representatives that truly represent our interests. And if those are those interests aren't being served, to remove those people through the legal mechanisms we have available through whether that be the ballot box, impeachment, or what other legal mechanism we have available at our disposal to remove people who are not keeping the covenants in the constitution and the rule of law because federal government another latin term fotis is where we get federal from and that essentially means covenant it's a covenant government so ultimately we need to hold people to their covenants that are in positions of civic authority and for those who are keeping those covenants the citizenry needs to back them up support them 100 percent, and and as a result Um, your interests in the long run are going to be much better represented. Mm -hmm. Very definitely. You need to be active, though. You need to be active. That's the problem that we have in this country right now is that we have a very uninvolved and very ignorant citizenry who have failed to do their duty to hold their elected leaders accountable. And they fail to learn what uh, being a citizen really entails. And that is not a free ride. Being a responsible citizen means that you are involved and you do read and learn and understand that there is a responsibility with citizenship. So let's take this to the next step. This has been fantastic uh, general discussion of what property is and what our rights and duties are as citizen. Now let's go to the next step, and that is what is happening right now where we are jumping on board with the so-called sustainability movement, uh, UN Agenda 21-2030, which is very definitely a, a Marxist move to replace God and uh, replace individual rights with collective rights and with uh, nature replacing nature's God. So let's take it from there. Yes, well, sounds good. So this will, so now we'll, yeah, shift gears and um, what is happening around us today? We've allowed the administrative state to expand so much, and the legislature and the judiciary have delegated so much and deferred so much authority over to the executive branch via um, administrative rulemaking through a whole vast array of federal departments 
And this administration and prior administrations, but in particular, this one has taken it really to a new level by using and wielding the executive powers functioning under this vast deference to implement agendas that are 100% antithesis to the fundamental principles of government that we've been discussing in the first hour of this program. Mm -hmm. um, so in the natural resources realm, this administration has opened up, uh, let's, I'll just go through some items and some of them maybe we can touch on a little bit more in depth, but I would just want to list some things. We have the sage grouse amendments that touch 10 states. Those are resource management planning documents that govern tens of millions of acres of federal lands in 10 states. And those records of decisions on those were finalized in 2015, 2017 for some states. This administration has opened all of them up. Uh, citing climate change as the need to re revisit them, revise them, and and virtually what I see happening is the introduction into those policy frameworks, <clears throat> many different elements of the executive um, agenda that has been being put forward by the Biden administration into these regional land use policy frameworks that govern the lands in those regions. Uh, you have the revision of the grazing regulations that touches, I believe, well over 200 million acres of Bureau of Land Management uh, administratively controlled lands across 11 states, I believe. Might be off by one state, give or take a state. Um, you have so those th both those processes right now are going through current development of draft environmental impact statements under the National Environmental Policy Act. And then you have recently off the press a utility solar environmental impact statement that's just started to be a scoping process and developing of draft impact statements for that, touching five states. And that's a document that will amend over 90, I be believe, uh, local resource management plans, the same management plans that are being amended by the Sage Grouse Initiative that will seek to classify lands that will be open for wind and solar development, which is part of the Biden agenda, agenda to replace our fossil fuel carbon-based industries for our energy supply with renewable energy. So they are actually beginning uh, official administrative rulemaking processes to classify all those federal lands for opening them up for the development of renewable um, resources. Department of Interior just recently also put off the Federal Register the plan to revise 40 CFR 1600, which are the regulations for land use planning that regulate the implementation administrative processes for developing all these amendments and plans, such as the sage grouse amendments, the grazing regulations, and all the land use planning processes. So they're developing all these documents and impact statements, and then Department of Interior issues a, a proposed rule change to revise the regulations 
for the Federal Land Policy Management Act land use planning process, and they want to, in this process, take conservation leasing in use and put it on plane under FLIPNA, Federal Land Policy Management Act, with livestock grazing, oil and gas leasing. The Federal Land Policy Management Act defines principal and major uses as livestock grazing, oil and gas leasing, wood products industry, fiber, and then recreation and wildlife. Conservation leasing and permitting is not among the principal and major uses of that statute passed by the Congress. The Department of Interior has taken it upon themselves to claim this novel thing that conservation leasing is on par with those principal uses under FLIPNA. And this body of law has been in place since 1976. And the agency has never interpreted this statutory authority to include conservation leasing ever in the history of the inception of that law. So now the executive branch, the Department of Interior, has taken it upon themselves to say, FLIPNA allows us to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, if FLIPNA allowed them to do this, why have they never done it in the near 50 years of the law? So, so there's a, you know, so, so we can go from there, but there's a, mm-hmm. and that's not all that's happening. Well, really quick, just let me add a couple other things is so then you have the council on environmental quality that has issued rules for corridors and ecological uh, ecological connectivity those are documents that serve as guidance for departments that are developing these land use plans and furthermore office and management and budget in the white house has gone about to revise all the regulatory processes for impacts analysis and review of economics impacts that result from all of these actions. So all this is happening right now in the administrative branch through official federal rulemaking guidance and documentation. And, you know, I function as in some regards as a somewhat of a subject matter expert within this field of administrative rulemaking and government to government relations. And let me just tell you, I'm struggling to keep up. So how much more so is the general public out there who has no clue most of this is even happening, supposed to scrutinize and hold accountable our government to make sure their interests and the interests of the American people are actually being represented in this blitzkrieg of administrative rulemaking. Mm -hmm. That's where we are. That's where we are. And what you were talking about, FLIPMA, the federal uh, Land Policy Management Act was done by Congress. That was a, a legal process. And all the other things that you're talking now that are revisions that are totally uh, changing that initial intent, every bit of that is by rulemaking. There's none of that that's been done by legislative process. Am I correct? Essentially, Dan, in many ways, that is that is the case. What what we have is the executive branch usurping to themselves Article One powers. Mm-hmm. And if for those of you that aren't familiar with our Constitution, Article One is the legislative branch, 
Article two is the executive branch and Article three is the judicial branch. That is where our founders enumerated these specific powers that are separate and distinct to those individual branches of government. That's where our separation of powers comes from, the legislative, executive, judicial. That's the first three articles of the federal constitution. But we have the executive branch usurping Article I powers to itself because a legislature under our federalist system of separation of powers is the sole lawmaking body. And sadly, the legislature in many respects has delegated in some cases too much discretion and authority to the executive branch and then the judiciary has done the same thing in many cases but what i will say um justice gorsuch um published a book in 2019 called the republic if you can keep it and he's a sitting supreme court justice as we speak <clears throat> and he said if an agency can enact a new rule of general applicability affecting huge swaths of the national economy one day and reverse itself the next, you might be forgiven for asking, where's the substantial guidance in that? <laughs> and if an agency can interpret the scope of its statutory jurisdiction one way one day and reverse itself the next, you might well wonder where are the promised clearly delineated boundaries of agency authority. And then he says, add to this the fact that today many administrative agencies wield vast powers and are overseen by political appointees, and you have a pretty potent mix. Under any conception of our separation of powers, I would have thought powerful and centralized authorities like today's administrative agencies would have warranted less deference from other branches, not more. Right. And then he says it's an arrangement too that seems pretty hard to square with the constitution of the founders design. Wow. That's not me saying <laughs> that that is a direct <laughs> quote, a Republic. If you can keep it, sitting Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. You know what he's doing? He's challenging in this publication the broad deference that the legislative and judicial branches have given over to the executive that he says is pretty tough to square with our Constitution and the intent and design therein. Um, so I'm encouraged by that because mm -hmm. we have six originalist Supreme Court justices. My hope is that more of our attorney generals and more of our law firms really begin to approach our courts in the context of the fundamental safeguards of our constitutional republic the separation of powers and the bright line limitations to the different departments of government. Because here's one other thing, and this is the realm where I work the most because I'm not functioning as, as a lawyer in the litigation realm, 
The fourth article of the Constitution is a guarantee to the states a Republican form of government, Mm -hmm. which is what James Madison in the Federalist Papers called a compound republic. So now we have this whole other subsidiary sovereign framework in individual states that have a legislative, executive, and judicial branch and political subdivisions of those states and county governments that exercise sovereign jurisdiction on the lands, resources, tax base, and the property rights interests of its voting constituency within their boundaries. Agenda 2030, Agenda 21, and this climate change agenda are processes that erode and blur those jurisdictional boundaries and the aggregates of power that protect you, the individual person. Well, I would, go we one, I would go one step beyond that. I would say UN Agenda 21, 2030, not only blur, I say they destroy that relationship because if we are allow them to proceed under their so-called sustainability guidelines, they will literally destroy our entire uh, constitutional system, our rule of law, certainly our Bill of Rights and everything that are foundational for the American system. And you're an expert now on UN Agenda 21, 2030. Let's talk about some of the new rules, some of the new things that are part of their so-called sustainable uh, future for the world. Well, you know, five years ago, even or 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the 20 agenda 21 and agenda 21 means essentially the agenda for the 21st century, which we are, we are in. And that was a, a formal document passed. Was it Rio de Janeiro, 92? Yes. Am I, am 92 I accurate? 92 in Rio. Mm. In Rio. Um, and Clinton, by executive orders, this, none of this has been adopted or um, brought forward by the legislative branch in our country. Well, it actually was. In 1996, it was brought before the Senate uh, because they were proposing ratification. And uh, Dr. Dr. Michael Kaufman uh, got together with several of the U.S. senators, and it was defeated by 98 to 2 as becoming a treaty that was ratified by the Senate. So it did have the test of the legislative process, and it failed so badly that they never, ever tried to bring it back. On the other hand, that through the administrative process, and this is what you're going to be talking about, Bill Clinton, through the President's Council on Sustainable Development, started implementing every single aspect of Agenda 21 illegally, without treaty, without ratification, started implementing all those programs through the various federal agencies that the administrative branch controls. 
Yeah. So that was the beginning of the implementation process, which Clinton and the agencies through those years really weren't able to get nearly reach nearly as far as what we're seeing in our day. Right. Um, but they, nonetheless, that's where it began. Those things were coming forward. And as you said, Dan, it was tested in the Senate and the legislature. Never have those things been ratified and, and, and brought forward. Hence, that's why they've expanded administrative branches and powers on the executive so that they can um, implement an agenda that has never been formally ratified through the Congress. And by the way, um, the Federal Land Policy Management Act says in, under the congressional policy that is the policy of the Congress of the United States of America, that all objectives and timetables be established by law. Mm-hmm. And none of the 20, 2050 agenda for net zero, 30% or actually in our case, 52% greenhouse gas reductions by 2030. None of those timetables and targets have been established by law. Right. Those are timetables that have been agreed to in international conventions by executive powers. So Biden's executive order 1408, one of the line items in there was a 30 by 30 agenda, Hmm. not the, not the agenda 21 per se, but basically a 30 by 30 agenda to permanently conserve 30% of lands and waters by 2030. So 30% of lands and waters by the year 2030, that's where the 3030 comes from. So there's another timetable and objective right there in that executive order, Mm. not law, never gone through the Congress, the Senate and the president's desk. And yet that executive order along with others is the driving factor back to what all these agencies are doing with the sage grouse amendments the ecological connectivity guidance from CEQ to the department heads, the climate action plans that have been adopted by, I believe, 26 federal departments. All of this is citing Executive Order 4808 or 1408 and 13990 as the basis of authority for opening up vast landscape planning processes. So that's how they're actually implementing the 30 by 30 agenda is they're using existing planning and policy frameworks um, to serve as a mechanism for those departments and agencies to issue rulemaking and land use planning processes that gives them other administrative options to tie up more lands to meet the conditions under Paris for what qualifies as conservation status. So back to Department of Interior, they just shot off the Federal Register a couple weeks ago, a rule to revise the regulations for implementing all the land use planning processes touching 245 plus million acres of lands in the West to include conservation use and leasing that's open to third party permittees And what conservation leasing means essentially is a is this will allow a third party NGO, nonprofit organization, to buy a deeded property that has connected federal permits and leases for livestock grazing or oil and gas leasing, et cetera, right. and apply to the Bureau of Land Management for a conservation lease, which removes those other permitted activities from the land. Therefore, right the classification of that land then shifts to the objective of the 30 by 30 initiative as being classified as a conservation use 
And that falls into the category of conserving 30% of lands and waters by 2030. So that's how they're actually, in a nutshell, implementing from the executive order to the secretarial orders, to the federal department heads, to the rulemaking process, to the local field office where the rules are coming into being, they're developing frameworks. They're not just going out and doing these land grabs like all these conservative groups are saying about 30 by 30. That's coming. But before they can do that, they have to fundamentally change the regulatory administrative frameworks that are in place that prohibit them from being able to do much what they want to do so that they then can do what they want to do. So that's where we're at the stage now, not of them coming and taking the property and putting it into conservation. We're at the stage of them rewriting the regulatory policy frameworks that they're bound by to give them the administrative options to tie up that real estate. So now more uh, than ever, we have to be involved. and, And Nathan, they are doing that by end run around the process of doing it by law, by congressional mandate, and they're doing it through rulemaking through the agencies that do not have the right to do that under our system of government. They are taking a second role. They are taking the legislative role and handing it to the administrative agencies and so literally we're destroying our whole constitutional system the tripart the 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 ability to uh, separation of powers to take apart the rulemaking and put it back in the legislative branch that's what we need to do yeah well and and there's two fronts for the american people to do something about that maybe three fronts i guess two fronts and then two subcategories of one of the fronts. The one front is largely the area that I do work in, and and that is through our compound republics at the state and local level to engage directly in these rulemaking processes with these federal agencies. So right now we're in real time going through these administrative rulemaking processes as we speak. Um, So, the Lord's really given me and some oper- unique opportunities. I actually I serve on the Montana Grass Conservation Commission, and I've so I have the opportunity to serve in that capacity as a lead contact, um, as a cooperating official, cooperating agency on a few of these rules, and and so that gives me the opportunity to be involved in the meetings with the Department of Interior and the agencies involved um, to see the preliminary work products. And to, and to provide input into those processes. I can't share much of that information uh, on this program or with the public because we're in, we have memorandums of understanding with the agency um, and we have privileged access and, and being engaged preliminarily in some of those processes. But that's one way that I'm personally being involved as a, as, as let, me, let me use the word magistrate, a civil servant in the state of Montana to represent the interests of our our grazing permittees on the ground in Montana and uh, being involved in those processes. I also, as an individual citizen, which is who, you know, that's the hat I'm wearing in this conversation right now is me, Nathan Deshmaker, as a citizen of the state of Montana and the citizen of our country. I'm also involved as an individual citizen in these processes and work with other people and 
and work with uh, our our counties and different powers to provide technical support so that we can uh, protect our property rights interests and our natural resources industries and hold accountable our federal counterparts and actually, because there's comment periods in these rulemaking processes, and if we're not putting things in the record when those doors are open, there's no weight to what we say. We can we can say mm-hmm. on this program what we think all day long. We can get on, we can write articles and publish op eds and and do all this stuff. But we need to take the law. We need to take the power we have under the constitutional framework of our government, the separation of powers and hold accountable um, our government counterparts. John Adams said, if power doesn't check power and ambition check ambition, we have tyranny. So our duty and responsibility and one front that we have to address this administrative rulemaking is through our lesser magistrates at the local levels to engage directly with the executive branch through the administrative rulemaking process through these comment periods. The other avenue that's, that, that this can be addressed is to the legislative branch. The Congress itself needs to grow a backbone and start doing what Dan said, taking back its sole enumerated powers delegated to them under the First Amendment, or not amendment, the first article of the U.S. Constitution, mm-hmm. as the lawmaking power and rein in uh, these departments that are appropriating to themselves powers not delegated. And the state legislatures is the subcategory of the legislative approach to deal with this that I believe also has some ability to be involved in this front because sometimes our state agencies are just as rogue and just as bad as the federal departments um, as well. And even our state legislatures can do many things uh, to mitigate the federal issues through resolution and other um, processes. So with that said, I just wanted to lay that out, that those are two fronts the American people can get involved as citizens at the local level, and then also hold accountable your legislators and your federal representatives, um, do your homework and try to do some work for them and help them be better to, to represent your interests and hold accountable the executive branch in their capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we, we see the abrogation of duty by Congress has been going on for a long time. They have given a lot of their power to the administrative agencies, but they've also done things like the Federal Reserve Act that uh, took the ability, the, the, the duty of Congress to administer our economic system through the U.S. Treasury and relegated that uh, responsibility and that role to a completely, uh, a completely private group called the Federal Reserve, which is actually a group of uh, private bankers who are now setting the whole policy structure for our entire financial system for the country. This is exactly how they do it. They give things away and and then they just kind of back away and let it all do its own thing. And in the process, we all lose our rights. Now the Federal Reserve System, and this isn't, I know this isn't a big part of your wheelhouse, but I know you understand it. 
the CBDC, the central bank digital currency that will get rid of all cash and create a completely digital financial system that can be controlled with a social credit system that they will be able to uh, administer. And under that social credit system, which is very close to what they're doing in China, if you don't agree with what the state is doing, if you don't agree with what the federal government is doing, your social credit score is going to take away your financial power completely. And you'll be owned and controlled by the state. That is another example of this. And so that's why it's so important that people understand what property rights really mean, because property is at the very center of all of this. Yeah. Well, and Dan, that's a good point. The banking side of this does play a huge part with the finance elements taking place. Mm -hmm. But I will say that's a... That's probably a whole discussion and, and program just in and of itself to, to go into what the Treasury Department's doing and and the multilateral development banks. Um, and I well, that's where ESG comes from. Yeah, that's where well, in the climate agenda, mm -hmm. because these yep. banks are pulling finance away from our carbon-based sources of energy development. Exactly, and, me, and then they're subsidizing green energy infrastructure at the same time. So our banking institutions and the regulatory powers that regulate them are picking winners and losers in the marketplace, which is a, a very illegitimate function of, of what otherwise should be neutral bodies in the marketplace, which is the banking institutions. And so back to with that in the context of what I was saying in the administrative state and the rulemaking process, What's lost to the American people in all of this is predictability and results in uncertainty. And as Justice Scalia pointed, pointed out a long time ago, is that uncertainty has always been inconsistent with the rule of law. Because the rule of law implies predictability. And when the executive branch usurps Article One authorities to itself, you can't predict how that government that is has arbitrary power mm -hmm. is going to act in drafting law. And, you know, so just a note on that, when men are no longer able to predict the coercive functions of government, the loss of private incentive and other subsidiary prerequisites that constitute self-government are diminished. Of course, uncertainty exists within the market and the spontaneous processes that relate to personal decisions and risks, but those uncertainties are based on unknowable contingencies, and therefore those who succeed and those who fail are not determined by authority, but the diligence and mutual assistance of his fellow man. This has repeatedly been demonstrated. When you cannot predict the coercive functions of government, it's not simply that people act and fail, it's that they fail to act at all because uncertainty is no longer simply linked to spontaneity, but by the dead hand of the great planners and conditioners. In these cases, lawful and righteous actions of citizens who attempt self-government are penalized. Freedom is linked to conditions set by the experts 
And of course, you are free to act, or we would not speak of one's choosing this or that. But when the alternatives have become so manipulated that the least painful path under the circumstances is precisely the way in which another mind and not your own has directed, did you at the end of the day choose at all? And that's where we are, is when we lose the legislative power of rulemaking and the predictability that individuals have of what government will or will not do, you don't know what the law will be, whether the law that it is as it stands today will be what it is now, tomorrow. And right. how do you make capital investments in the marketplace, in the, in the industries that exist, um, without those stable policies and long-term policies in place to guarantee returns on your financial investment in the case that I'm discussing in our natural resource industries? Mm -hmm. It's a massive problem. This, this is destabilizing the, the economic frameworks and it's causing economic confusion. And I'll remind people that economic confusion is the breeding ground of totalitarian ideas. And there's plenty of those out there. Dan mentioned the CB, what is it? The central ban banking uh, digital, digital currency. currency. Mm -hmm. there's, a ver there's a totalitarian idea for you. These rules coming off the federal register are very totalitarian in nature. They're, they're, they're a centralized form of all-encompassing knowledge of all these different things and then dictating how they're to function under a centrally planned framework. That's not freedom. Uh, that's not individual entrepreneurship. That's politically appointed bureaucrats we're using science to dictate to the individual people in the marketplace how they are to govern their affairs. Mm -hmm. And that's not a good place to be for a people. And it's not a, it's not freedom. It's not Liberty. Um, so we need to bring back the principles of Liberty and private property, the separation of powers and, and hold our government counterparts accountable to the fundamental principles that are there. Um, because the other side knows that those are there. Um, but they're just trying to run roughshod over these things and get things in place that basically erodes the principles de facto. Mm -hmm. exactly. That's their goal. Exactly. Well, uh, Montana is a perfect example is the mining industry in Montana. Now, Montana is a treasure state. Our state motto is Oro de Plata, which is uh, gold and silver. Uh, we were uh, a natural resource state uh, for our entire existence in 1970, as late as 1970, we were number six in the nation in per capita income. And it was because we used our natural resources. Since then, the environmental movement has more or less taken over the state. And they have shut down so much of the mining, so much of the timber industry. Uh, we used to have several hundred sawmills in the state. I think the latest count were down to five uh, in the state. Uh, the mining operations, uh, Montana used to be one of the easier states to get permitted right now, I believe. We are number 46 
in difficulty to get permits. Uh, I know in the case of the Golden Sunlight mine over near Whitehall, um, Barrick, uh, who is a major gold producer, uh, had the permit on that operation. They were trying to get permits to expand the mine. They're a very responsible mining group. They reclaim everything. They do all the stuff. They were one of the very last uh, uh, cyanide cycle mines in the in the country or in the state, and uh, they were very very responsible in the way they did it. But anyway, I'm going. I I don't want to get too far off field. But the reality is now uh, that mine is shut down because they couldn't get the permit. The average permitting process in the state of Montana is has gone from a matter of six months to a year, where now it's 15 years minimum, and could be as high as 25 years to get a mine permit. That is where we're at. And that is a function of taking responsible land use and turning us into a uh, well, an environmentally green state. And incidentally, since 1970, when we were number six in per capita income, we're now number 49 in per capita income. And that means that only Mississippi has a lower per capita income than the state of Montana. Yeah, well, those are excellent points, Dan. Um and a perfect example of offsetting economic development by tying up resources and impoverishing people over time. Mm -hmm. um, so, the like you mentioned, the logging industry. You know, right now, Northwestern Ener Energy just had to stop development of an oil and gas facility they're trying to build in uh, Billings or Laurel, maybe. Um, and they, they all the workers are laid off at this point because because NGOs brought a lawsuit through the courts and the judiciary that mm -hmm. tied up the building of the facility. The copper mine over White Sulphur has been going through litigation and trying to get feet under them to open up and go into production forever. Um, mm -hmm. And this this is this is a story that can be told across the United States, in particular in the West where you have, and it's true in the East as well, but especially in the West where you have federal lands, there's a lot more leverage the federal government has in some of those processes. Um, but the scary thing is, is they're starting to reach more and more into the private lands as well on the mm -hmm. regulatory front to dictate what you can and cannot do on your own property. Um, so this is very concerning from a private property rights standpoint, and therefore from a liberty standpoint, and if we don't have property, we are property. So we have to preserve those things to our future, our generations yet to come. Otherwise they will be nothing. They will no longer be beneficiaries. You can't, you can't call somebody a beneficiary when what they inherit is slavery and That's right. servitude. So we have a deep responsibility as American citizens. We are not living in the business as usual days. We need men of weight, conviction, courage, and boldness that stand on the truth and are willing to speak the truth and aren't compromising. You can't straddle the fence on these issues. 
Um, it's not an easy battle, never has been. Um, don't expect it to be easy, but the Bible tells me that we are not to grow weary in doing good because in due season, we will reap a harvest. Mm -hmm. And whether that's in this life or in what God is going to provide for us in eternity, because the fact is I read the last chapter and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. That's the culmination of all of this. Uh, hopefully we have enough freedom loving people and patriots and Christian people in, in our world that we can preserve uh, civilization and give opportunity for the preaching of truth and the gospel to the peoples of this world. But I also am aware from the prophetic standpoint that people tend to apostatize and that tends to be where we are as a country right now and become negligent and compromise and make exceptions to the law and to the word of God. And that brings judgment on a nation. It weakens a nation. So we need, we need spiritual revival and a repentance in the heart of the people in this country. Uh, that's the only thing that's going to give the passion and conviction and the strength to stand against the forces of our day. Um, it's no, it's pretty easy right now compared to the men we were talking about in this first hour, like Luther and Zwingli, uh, Samuel Rutherford, Samuel Rutherford published that book. I mentioned Lex Rex, the law is King. Uh, by the way, they put him in jail and they were holding him there for trial. And he died of sickness before he could go to trial. Probably would have burned him at the stake. If he got him there, they for sure burnt his book in the streets. Mm -hmm. Um, but those men, uh, sacrificed their life, their liberty and for their property for posterity standing for the truth. And the only way that those men were able to do that um, is in the power of the spirit that God gives to us and the promise of eternal life. And that if we serve him and his interests in this world, he is preparing a place for those who are faithful and put their hand to the plow and don't look back. Mm -hmm. So that's my, my admonition to those of you that are listening in is we have a civic duty and responsibility, but I would submit that that's subsidiary to our, our Christian spiritual responsibility and duty, uh, which is to be right with God as individual people. And that doesn't mean you sit in your cozy chair and pop up the recliner and quote John three sixteen and wait for God to come. Mm -hmm. And to the contrary means you better be an ambassador for Jesus Christ mm -hmm. and his law in this world, terra firma. And we will be held accountable one day for the words we speak and for the actions we take in this world. Uh, and you know, we're, we're in exciting times. I think in, in many contexts, we, the, the, the Bible says the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. Mm -hmm. So I pray just like Jesus prayed for workers to be sent into the harvest. And that harvest, by the way, is individual people. Our goal is that individual people would wake up that they would come to an understanding of the fact that the foundations that they're standing on, that they think are secure, if they're not careful, they're going to be ripped out from under their feet. Thank God the foundation we stand on can never be taken out from under us mm -hmm. because our foundation is set in eternity. It's an anchor of hope for our soul. And we have a firm foundation, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ,
the only name under heaven through which men can be saved. That is the foundation of our faith. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. So that foundation cannot be taken from us. But uh, if we don't stand on that and we don't represent those interests and stand for the gospel in the world, we cannot have civic liberty and all the, all the, all the things that make causes the benefits that flow to our posterity, our children and their children. If we don't stand as Christian men and women for righteousness, the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but Mm -hmm. sin is the reproach to any people and take a look around folks. And this starts with you. Don't look at your neighbor and be like, man, that's a bad guy. You don't worry about your neighbor. You take responsibility. You look into the word of God that it cost men getting burnt at the stake to place on your desk to read in a language you can understand and do something about it. Um, so start there. And if you're inclined like me to get involved in a civic civic things, I will tell you the only reason I'm involved in civic process is because I started in the context of our responsibility to the Lord to know his word and to apply it in the world around us. So that's mm-hmm. my, that's my, <laughs> my, my little sermon, I guess. Sunday, my, Sunday message. Sunday, but Sunday Nathan, soapbox. <laughs> Nathan. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, our responsibility, our civic responsibility, there's no question that our system of government is founded on God's law. It's founded on the Holy Bible. It's founded on common law. We talked about that during the first hour. Uh, Everything that is so uniquely American is founded on the Judeo-Christian ideology of the Protestant Reformation. That is the fact. That is the truth. Now, let's talk about how we can start to make understanding of property rights and what, what we're doing that, uh, that people can get involved. And I'm going to go back to the American Prairie Reserve. We've got only 15 minutes, but that's such a huge part of what you've been working on, and it's an understanding that UN Agenda 21 Non-governmental organizations, nonprofits internationally are in Montana setting the agenda for a whole new program of local governance that is through administrative rulemaking, and it has absolutely nothing to do with our constitutional framework. Let's talk about the American Prairie Reserve. Yeah. So yeah, American Prairie Reserve is a, as you said, a nonprofit foundation funded by multinational billionaires. And they're coming, they're buying up a lot of ranch land around the Charles M. Russell Game Reserve, already existing 1.1 million acre reserve in the heart of Montana. Their goal is to patch together a bunch of private inholdings with large BLM leases to create a 3.5 million acre reserve in the heart of Montana to restore wild bison and a fully functioning ecosystem of grizzly bears, wolves, and all the apex predators and no human development and presence. It's a long-term goal. They're a long ways from it, but 
but they do have over 400,000 acres of combined private and federal lands. They're going through processes to convert those permits. And that's where these conservation leases Department of Interior is pushing is really problematic on the APR front because those are gonna be the first organizations that apply for those conservation leases and remove those lands from productive use and put them into conservation use. Not gonna be good. They're on the trajectory to do just that. We have our Secretary of Interior recently issued a secretarial order to restore wild bison on lands across the West. Um, our counties and state officials were, um, what happened, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service contracted the Center for Environmental, I can't remember the whole name of it, uh, the University of Montana organization that has been doing preliminary kind of scoping work in the last two years to find out stakeholder perspectives mm. on wild bison introduction onto the CMR, which the APR wants to marry into. And the really disturbing thing about this is they have they've lumped state and county authorities and officials into the category of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. The term stakeholder appears nowhere in federal and state statutes that relate to coordination and cooperation with federal administrative agencies in rulemaking and management decisions. County governments and state agencies are not stakeholders. They are that's right. County, they are from a county perspective, they are sovereign yep. government. They're political mm -hmm. subdivisions of the state of Montana, and they have distinct powers, distinct from the public or any stakeholder group, to engage government to government with these federal departments and their management decisions and rulemaking processes. And what's happening in central Montana with these wild bison initiatives and these planning initiatives. Our federal agencies are contracting universe academia to come and talk to our local governments about how we feel about it. And meanwhile, in the process, they call us stakeholders. Mm -hmm. That needs to be resolved. They cannot call local government stakeholders, which is a UN a co concoction, a, a, a regional planning cog framework, a council of government framework, that subverts and blurs back to what we discussed earlier, those local jurisdictional boundaries. Those jurisdictional boundaries constitute jurisdictional government. Jurisdiction, by the way, comes from two Latin words. Juris meaning law, and diction is to dictate, to speak. Mm -hmm. So we, from a county with the jurisdictional boundaries, are to speak the law not as a stakeholder group, but as an right. aggregate of power sovereign. recognized in the state and federal constitution as a sovereign, self-governing power that has responsibility to preserve to its voting constituency that lives in its boundaries, by the way, the right mm -hmm. to self-determination. Mm -hmm. That's what That's we right. need to restore in these processes these administrative rulemaking processes that they're doing on wild bison on the CMR and the APR's effort to consolidate all the lands, not as government, but they're a private organization, but they're working with government to consolidate lands and to transition the use of the lands to non-use. So, I mean, there's a ton I could go into on the APR, but that gives a 
one perspective, I guess, is some things of how they're working and how government's working in central Montana. Um, that's, that's not being fair to the existing legal processes that counties should be involved in. Um, and is blurring those jurisdictional boundaries and is threatening the protections in place for the livestock industry across a large amount of central Montana. That's right, because under the, the terms of uh, what they're trying to accomplish, livestock is, uh, which was part of the original uh, Federal Lands Policy Management Act as a primary uh, consideration or goal of management uh, becomes subsidiary and conservation becomes more a goal. And, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, councils of government, you mentioned uh, uh, NGOs. NGOs are a invention of the United Nations. A non-governmental organization per se did not exist prior to the 1950s. They were created by the UN as a mechanism to give the appearance of grassroots support for various uh, things that they were trying to accomplish, environmental and so forth. And uh, non-governmental organizations are not part of our government. <laughs> you know, but look at how important NGOs are now in the whole process. They've literally taken over many of the administrative processes are controlled by non-governmental organizations, which are a, a function of UN bureaucrats, basically. Well, it's interesting you say that, Dan, because what's essentially happened, we talked earlier about the delegation from the legislative branch and judicial branch to the executive branch. Now we have the executive branch delegating its administrative rulemaking authority and research responsibilities to what's become essentially a fourth branch of government via not right. nonprofit, special interest, non-governmental organizations that are the tail wagging the dog in administrative rulemaking. Right. And that's why they're hiring academia to be a mediator between local government. No, those agencies need to come to those county commissioners and talk with them. Don't hire academia mm -hmm. to be the ones to go out and talk to those government officials. That's not government to government mm -hmm. communication and coordination and cooperation. That's a delegation of statutory responsibility of agencies to private sector, not nonprofit, special interest stakeholder groups that really have no statutory jurisdictional power whatsoever no. to be the driving force of administrative rulemaking and management decisions that affect counties, property rights, tax base, et cetera. So mm -hmm. very good point, Dan, you make there. There's, there's essentially, if we're not careful, a fourth branch of government developing through this illegitimate delegation of powers that is subverting uh, local government jurisdictional power and therefore subverting you, the individual person, and the protections that are in place to serve your interests. Uh, instead, mm -hmm. there's billionaires in Europe and elsewhere 
that are funding these special interest processes uh, to drive rulemaking that affects your ability to access resources and have cheap, affordable, and reliable energy and food and fiber at your disposal as, as a citizen of this country. And the American people need to wake up to that reality. Otherwise, we're not going to be in a very good position uh, to defend and protect our interests. No, that's right. And uh, non-governmental organizations are the primary source of uh, the various appointed officials that go into government positions. And I'll certainly use one example is Tracy Manning, uh, who is very, very high up uh, in the, the whole environmental movement. She came in through, I think it was Defenders of Wildlife was her first uh, NGO group that she worked for. And she ended up as the head of, under Bullock, the head of the uh, Montana, um, what's, what's the agency that she was the head of? Uh, uh, oh, for crying out loud. Environmental. Uh, the Department of Quality, maybe, or I, I know, I yeah, should know yeah. this too. The, the Department of Environmental Quality. That's exactly right, DEQ. Department yep. of Environmental Quality. She was appointed to that by Bullock, and now she's uh, well up the food chain in the Biden administration. Yeah, she's the director of Bureau of Land Management. Right, right. Yeah, and look where she came from. Uh, you know, she came from a radical environmental group and made her way up the process. That's how they're picking leaders for a lot of these various agencies. Now, you mentioned Council of the Government. That is a really, really big subject because we have replaced uh, local uh, elected officials with something called, called Councils of Government. And they basically, they're appointed people who came in and are representing regional interests rather than local interests, and they replace elected officials with appointed bureaucrats uh, because of a degree in something or, uh, you know, some other appointment, they are replacing local elected officials. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Well, that's, and, and those come in the form of working groups, task forces, um, and a whole host of other names and terminology where they get, and sometimes they even have elected officials that sit on these working groups and task forces, mm -hmm. um, but they're not, there's no jurisdictional power and authority in them. What they are is basically a echo chamber of consensus. It's a Delphi technique approach to weed out the naysayers and get people at a local level to think that these were their ideas that they came up with it. They include them into the working group process. They have the breakout groups. They come to a consensus and then they go home uh, thinking everybody's on the same page. Um, but that's not the bicameral process of rulemaking that our founders designed. No. There's no accountability in that. Those working groups and task forces are designed to marginalize any dissenting voices. 
And let me remind you, dissenting voices are absolutely essential to the preserving of liberty in our constitutional republic. And I know we're, I think we're a couple minutes to the hour, Dan, but um, with that said, I'll just say thanks again for having me on. Um, and, well, we always and, have and great discussions, here. but I want to give you a chance to talk about the group that you're forming and what you're working with to try to uh, provide uh, help and leadership on land policy issues. Yeah. Yeah, for your listening audience, so I'm starting a, a private membership association, uh, Landmark Resource MT, um, that I will be, it's not online yet, but will be in a short order. Um, and I'm, I'm creating that private membership association, kind of like a missionary um, going to a church. Uh, hey, I'm going to go here and serve and do this if you're not going to shoot carry bullets. Um, so I'm creating a private membership association to give the opportunity for people, uh, property rights interests, landowners, elected officials, or just patriots that support the work that I do. Because most of my work, 80% of the work I do is uh, sweat of my brow and because I care about the issues. But I want to create a framework and a support system of people that support the work that I do um, so that I can have a baseline of resources to continue doing what I'm doing, tracking the issues, fielding the issues, and equipping people in my realm, in the private properties realm, in the nation, and in our state to more better be equipped to engage in these processes and to protect the property pri property rights interests of our individual constituents in the country. So, so I'm on that endeavor. Um, I'll, I'll give an email. Eventually, I'll have a web page set up uh, that'll have member access to full searchable databases, et cetera. Um, but as of now, I'm bringing that online. I'll put an email out there that if anybody is interested in shooting an email that may have interest in this as it develops, uh, landmark, just as it sounds and spells, landmark mt at yahoo.com. Landmark L A N D M A R K M T at yahoo.com. You can shoot an email to me there uh, if you may have any interest uh, as this comes online to be involved in this association which is based on our fifth and 14th amendment to freedom, the freedom of association. Um, if you email me, I will, uh, uh, connect with you and keep you informed of when that comes online. And then if you're interested at that point, I'll give the opportunity to be a member and that'll give you access to briefings and, and myself and my work to be able to, uh, to serve you in what way I can to feed information or, or, or other opportunities as well. So uh, thank you, Dan, for, well, for the opportunity. Well, thank you. And Nathan, incidentally, I don't know if you're liberty to talk about this, but you have prepared a very, very well thought out, reasoned, and I think quite legal document as a brief to attorneys general all over the country uh, that basically gives them the groundwork, the framework to contest the 30 by 30 regulations that came out of the Biden administration. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, just really quickly for the sake of time. And maybe, Dan, we can have a follow-up program and talk about just the climate change issue and that document. 
because I'm, I'm beginning to, to disseminate that document. Um, and I developed this document kind of as, as a groundwork to build up to my private membership association. This document is an example of the kind of work that I'm going to provide to my members and also push out into the civil sphere to drive decision-making and, and equip our officials. Um, so the document's called All Roads Lead to Paris, Administrative Chronology, uh, tracking the Biden administration under these climate executive orders and identifying structural violations of the implementation of those orders. Yet again, if you want to reach out to me at that email I put out, um, probably not within the close time frame, like in a week, but coming up maybe in the next month, um, if you have, are of interest, I can get you that document um, to show mm -hmm. you an example of the work products I'll be facilitating that you as a member of that association will support. Um, so, so yeah, Dan, maybe on a follow-up program coming up in the, in the next month or so, uh, we can have a specific conversation at least for an hour on, on that climate document and, and the implications therein. Yeah, let's do that. And I know you've got a great little PowerPoint that you can bring in as well, talking about the environmental issues uh, that are behind a lot of this. So uh, I look forward to that. Nathan, thank you for being our guest. You're always uh, you're a brilliant young man. I absolutely am proud of the relationship we have and proud to know you and uh, fully support everything you're trying to do. Yep. Thank you, Dan, very much for your, your support and everybody else as well. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee across the plains of Texas oh, from sea to shining sea from Detroit down to Houston There ain't no doubt I love this land.